In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Brothers, sisters, and respected viewers, wherever you may be, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And welcome to this latest installment in our series on the important topic of the afterlife through which, um, as you have been following along, we began initially by highlighting the importance of the topic for our worldview with a focus on the practical implications of this belief on our daily lives and the decisions that we make. We said that a human being who believes that there's an afterlife, a human being who believes that there's something awaiting them after they die, is not going to be living in the same manner as someone who is going to live a life where they think that this body of theirs is all that there is and that the moment that they die and they move into non-existence then everything ceases. We spent a little bit of time understanding the dimension of the human being that we refer to as the soul, the immaterial component of the human being which we said constitutes the main identity of the human being with this body being secondary, being the instrument given to the soul to interact in this world. And we established the arguments, the proofs for the existence of the soul, for some of the characteristics, the nature of the soul, both through reason as well as through scripture. And then we came back to the topic of the afterlife and we began exploring what we can say in terms of rational demonstration or arguments to see whether we can establish that there is an afterlife or not. And the rational conclusion was that not only can there be an afterlife, a life after this one, but that it is necessary. There is a necessity for an afterlife for this world to make sense and to a large extent we relied on things that we had said in the past in the sequence, the logical sequence that we had presented beginning with the topic of the attributes of God, the divine attributes amongst which we found the attribute of divine wisdom and divine justice and through those, through those two attributes we established the necessity of the afterlife based on reason. And then we looked at what the scripture says and this led to a little bit of a, an excursion, we called it, through the verses of the Quran. And in those verses we started seeing that the Quran doesn't just jump into the topic of the afterlife. In fact, more than or perhaps around a third of the verses of the Quran have to do with the topic of the afterlife. And given this, it might be worth taking a little bit of time to understand how does the Holy Quran deal with this topic from a 
demonstration and argumentation point of view. And we split the verses into four or five categories. We began by saying that the Holy Quran, when it deals with anything of importance, it expects human beings to present strong, rational proofs for their position. So when it comes to those who deny the afterlife, we saw that the Holy Quran establishes clearly that there is no proof, there is no argumentation, there is no evidence that can be provided for denying the afterlife. So to start with, there's kind of a dismantling of the argumentation of those who want to deny. Following this, we saw that the Holy Quran basically says the most that someone could claim is that the afterlife is unlikely. That what you are describing happening after we die is not very probable. And given that this is your strongest argument, the Holy Quran says, it proceeds to dismantle this idea by providing proofs to show that it is really not that unlikely. In fact, the notion of a resurrection and the cycle of life and death is in fact happening all around us all the time. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes a point to state that the reason why He created this world in this specific manner is, is specifically so that we understand the cycle of life and death and we understand that the resurrection is as easy for Allah to do as it was for Him to create in the first place. And in addition to this, we saw how the Holy Quran added other examples for those who believe in the scripture and for those who have a little bit more of an acquaintance to what has happened throughout history. For instance, the people of the book, the Christians of the Jews, who also have their scriptures and in which there are multiple mentions of events that prove that resurrection has happened in this life, which means that it is more than possible and probable and that leads to the idea of the afterlife being a necessity. Then we saw how the Holy Quran deals with some of the main objections that someone may have against the idea of the afterlife. And to complement those objections, we spent a little bit of time going outside of the Holy Quran very quickly through what theologians and philosophers have said about the possibility and the impossibility of the afterlife and what are the main quick answers to, I believe, something like seven or ten of the objections that we saw the last time we met. Which brings us to where we are today, where we want to deal with the two last groups of verses from the Holy Quran that deal with the demonstration of the afterlife. So now we are at the point of seeing what does the Holy Quran present in terms of proofs that there is an afterlife. So that now that it has taken out of the equation the idea that there is any arguments to establish that there is no afterlife, we know that's not a possibility. We also know that there's plenty happening around us, which is in short the entire cycle of nature, to see, to witness the resurrection and the cycle of life and death happening all around us all the time. Now we are ready to look at what the Holy Quran has to say in terms of its own proofs to establish not only, as we said, the possibility of the afterlife, 
but that it is necessary, the necessity of the afterlife. Two groups of verses that we decided that we would put together, inshallah, today so that we can move to the next topic when we meet next time. Inshallah, we have enough time to cover it today. The first one has to do with the divine promise. We are going to look at some of the verses of the Holy Quran that establish that the afterlife is a divine promise. This on its own is an argument to establish the necessity of the afterlife. And we'll explain in a second how. In addition to this, the last group of verses that we wanted to look at are the verses that have a more of a rational presentation. We can even say a philosophical presentation to establish the necessity of the afterlife. And to a large extent, those groups of verses are going to bring us back to the rational proofs which we established before, based on the argument of divine wisdom and divine justice. So this is the structure for uh, today's uh, lecture, inshallah. We begin with the idea of the Holy Qur'an being a scripture. We're not going to establish that the Holy Qur'an is a divine scripture now. We spent enough lectures on that in the past. But this is the premise on which we're building the rest of the argumentation now. If the Holy Qur'an is truly a scripture from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if the Holy Qur'an is a message sent from God to humanity, as we showed in detail in the past, we not only showed that the Holy Qur'an is a scripture, we showed that it is of a miraculous nature, and we spent extensive amount of time on that, and we also showed that it is authentic. So when we say the Qur'an today, we're still talking about the same book as the book that was revealed to Prophet Muhammad So if this is clearly the case, as we shown, showed that it was, with this in mind, now we come to the Holy Qur'an to see what does it say about the afterlife. So you should be, by now, someone who believes in the authenticity of the Holy Qur'an. You should believe that this is actually a scripture from God. Now when you come to say, the Qur'an says, do this or don't do that, or the Qur'an establishes a certain truth, then you can take it as a scripture or a message or a teaching coming to you directly from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, what we want to add to this, and so this part should be clear enough, what we want to add to this is that if the Qur'an comes to us and says, and there is an afterlife, that in itself should be enough of a proof. And we would call that a scriptural proof. A proof based on scripture. This is not a proof based on reason. It's based on scripture. It's from revelation that there is an afterlife. What we want to say today is that in addition to just that, the Quran saying there is an afterlife, the Quran says two more things. The first one is that not only there is an afterlife, but that God promises, makes an oath that there will be an afterlife and a resurrection and a judgment and eternal hell or heaven. That's one. So there's a divine promise, which is in addition to just a scripture saying something. So that in itself becomes one more argument. When God promises something, he delivers. Okay, so that's the gist of the argument. 
The second part is that the Holy Quran, in addition to being a scripture, and this is a point that maybe we can wrap up with when we come to the conclusion today, it also presents many of its teachings and many of its points as rational arguments. So that even if you don't want to look at the Holy Quran as a scripture from God, you can still look at what it's saying based on reason. So while this is a scriptural proof, there is a very strong rational or philosophical dimension to the proofs that the Holy Quran presents as we will see inshallah. So first of all, let's look at the verses of the Quran that establish that the afterlife is a promise from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that it will happen with certainty. That there is not a possibility of there being or not being an afterlife. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala establishes very clearly in the Holy Quran that the afterlife will happen without any doubt. And that this is an oath, a promise that Allah makes. So first of all, the verses that talk about the afterlife not being open for doubt. A number of verses without commentary very quickly. In 40.59, the Quran says, the hour, so this is a reference to Judgment Day, the hour will certainly come. There is no doubt in this, yet most people do not believe. In 6.12, it says, say to whom belongs whatever is in the heavens and the earth? Say to Allah. He has made mercy incumbent upon himself. He will surely gather you on the day of resurrection, in which there is no doubt. Those who have ruined their souls will not have faith. So in this case, and I think we've commented on these verses enough in the past, but there's a clear relationship between the manner in which this world is created and there being an afterlife. And that's why there's always an insistence to whom belongs the heavens and the earth, and there's an insistence on the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In 42.7, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Thus have we revealed to you an Arabic Quran that you may warn the people of the mother of the town, so a reference to Mecca, and those around it. This is the general warning. And then there's an insistence, a specific warning, and warn them of the day of gathering. So one of the days of the day of judgment, in which there is no doubt, whereupon a part of humankind will be in paradise, and a part will be in the place. And in 45.32, and when it was said, Allah's promise is indeed true, and there is no doubt about the hour, you used to say, so of course Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking here, about what's to come. We are now in the afterlife in this verse, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking to those who are now in hell, and he says, when it was said, Allah's promise is indeed true, and there is no doubt about the hour, you used to say, we do not know, we do not know what the hour is, we know nothing but conjectures. So to us, there's only a probability, we're not sure, and we do not possess any certainty. So now they find themselves in the afterlife, but it is to In the next groups of verses that talk about the divine promise, two more groups very quickly. In the first one, in the second one, the first one we saw before, in the second one Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is now saying, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes a promise, which was the case in the first group, that promise cannot be broken. It should go without saying, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes a point 
to mention that. It's not becoming of a God like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make a promise and then break it. That's what it's saying. So in 1638, the Quran says they swear their strongest oaths by Allah that Allah will not raise up those who die. <clears throat> no, indeed, but it is a promise binding on him in truth, but most of humankind do not realize. So this is to establish clearly that if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes a promise, he will not break that promise. It should go without saying, but the Quran makes a point to emphasize this. Our Lord, you will indeed, and this is a prayer of those that the Quran refers to as they have al-bab, they have intellect, they have reason. It says, our Lord, you will indeed gather humankind on a day in which there is no doubt, indeed Allah does not break his promise. And another verse in 4.122, but those who have faith and do righteous deeds, we will admit them into gardens with streams running in them to remain in them forever, a true promise of Allah, and who is truer in, spe in speech than Allah. And then finally in 31.33, O humankind, be wary of your Lord, and fear the day when a father shall not atone for his child, nor the child shall atone for his father in any way. Indeed, Allah's promise is true. So do not let the life of the world deceive you, and do not let the deceiver deceive you concerning Allah. So this is the second group of verses related to the divine promise. The last, and I have only one verse here quickly, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, here there's a double promise. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala promises through his scripture and promises through his prophet and he promises himself. So there's a double promise here. So the Quran says the disbelievers think that it will not be raised up for judgment. Say, I swear by my Lord, you shall be surely raised up. Then shall you be told the truth of all that you did. And that is easy for Allah. So here we can say, well, Allah is not promising. It's the Quran or it's the Prophet. Yeah, but it's Allah behind them who tells them to say that. So there's a double promise here. Allah subhanahu wa is instructing his Prophet to say, tell them I swear, which means Allah subhanahu wa is swearing. So this is, in case we're saying, the Qur'an says Allah swears, but here Allah is swearing directly. Okay, so that's why we're saying it's a double promise. In addition to all of this, the Holy Qur'an has made it a point to say that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends His prophets, and we've talked about prophethood in general extensively, we said that there are a number of different roles, functions, reasons why prophets are sent. One of the main ones the Qur'an tells us is specifically to deliver this promise that there will be an afterlife. That's one of the main reasons why prophets are sent to humanity. The Qur'an says, the Lord of the throne, Allah subhanahu wa is describing himself. By his command does he send the spirit to any of his servants that he pleases, that it may warn, so his command, that it may warn of the day of the meeting. And more explicit than that, O company of jinn and humans, did there not come to you messengers from amongst yourselves, recounting to you my signs and warning you of the encounter of this day? They will say, we testify against ourselves, the life of this world had deceived them, and they will testify against themselves that they had been of those who rejected the faith. And lastly, in 3971, and those who disbelieve will be driven unto hell in throngs, in groups, 
till when they reach it, its gates will be opened, and its keepers will say to them, Did not messengers from among you come to you, reciting unto you the signs of your Lord, which is one of the functions of prophethood, and the other one, and warning you of the meeting of this day? They will say, Yes, indeed, but the word of punishment has now come due for the disbelievers. The conclusion of all of this is in these last verses, which is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has explained the necessity of the afterlife. And then he has sent prophets to explain that necessity to us as a promise that there will be an afterlife. If at the end of all of this you still reject, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala considers that an act of defiance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You are now openly declaring war on God. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala changes tone with you here. So it says rather they have denied the hour and we have prepared a blazing fire for those who deny the hour. And in another verse it says, and in these, those who do not, indeed, those who do not believe in the hereafter surely deviate from the path. And this could be taken metaphorically as in the straight path, doing righteousness and so on and so forth, or it could be taken more literally. If you go back to the narrations, there is a whole series of narrations that talk about the path being something that you actually have to walk. There is an actual path that you walk, and that path will be made up of your actions and your deeds and your intentions and who you were in this life. So the better those were, the better, the better those actions were, the better those intentions were, the better that path is going to be, and the easier it will be for you to walk across it. And, of course, the worse you were, and depending on the lack of quality of your deeds, of your intentions, of what you did or did not do in this world, if it was not so good, then that path will not be able to take you all the way to heaven. That's the more literal meaning of these verses. In addition to all of this, so now that, inshallah, it's clear that the Holy Quran has presented its own version of the divine promise being an additional argument. The Holy Quran says there is an afterlife and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has promised that there is an afterlife. Now let's look at the more rational proofs that the Holy Quran presents for the afterlife. And again, here we're not going to go through the full detailed explanation of the rational component of these because we presented it in detail before. A very quick reference to each of these. So first of all, the first type of argument which we said is based on divine wisdom. We said Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, is a wise actor. When he acts, he acts with wisdom. He acts with purpose. If he does something or decides something or does not do something, there's always a purpose behind it. And we establish that in detail. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you an ability to do something or gives you a feeling of wanting something, he puts the desire for something in you, but does not give you a way to reach that desire, to fulfill that need, then we can say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not acting with wisdom. He's not acting with purpose. If I build a 10-story building, but I have no way of reaching beyond the first story, first floor, you're stuck on the first floor and there's 10 floors, you say whoever built this building was not very wise. 
You created a lot more than you needed and you did not give any way to fulfill, to use everything that was created. And we said human beings have a need for eternal living and they have a need for perfection and they always want more pleasure and they have all, always more needs than what this life can provide for them. So if that is truly the case and a human being has these needs that cannot be met in this world and that's all there is, this world, then we could counter and say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not a wise creator. He's not a wise God. He does not act with full purpose. He put things in us that we can never fully meet. We can never fully fulfill. But that's how we established through reason the necessity of the afterlife. Where all those things that cannot be fully met in this world can be fully met in the next world if you choose to use it in that way. Okay? So, with that said, that was the a very quick summary of the Divine Wisdom argumentation. Now let's see what the Holy Quran says. In 13.2, the Holy Quran says, It is Allah who raised the heavens without any pillars that you see, and then presided over the throne. So the throne is a reference to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's knowledge and power. He disposed the sun and the moon, each moving for a specified term. He directs the command and elaborates the signs, so that you may be certain of encountering your Lord. And we have talked about this a lot, and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created this world in a specific way, and here you see some of the listing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is presenting to you, to remind you why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created the world in this way. And the conclusion is that all of this is so that you may be certain of your encountering of your Lord. You may be certain that there is an afterlife. That's the reason why this world is created in this way. It could have been created in another way. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created this way so that you are certain of your encounter of the of your Lord, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In 2315, do you think, and here's a lot more clarity, that was maybe an indirect mention or reference to divine wisdom. Here's the direct one. Do you think, do you then think that we have created you out of foolishness and that you would not be brought back to us? And here there's a whole lot of commentary if you go back to the works of the scholars on this verse to talk about the logic behind this verse and what type of, they call them syllogisms, the, the way the propositions are put together, the structure of the logic here. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is asking a rhetorical question. It's not a real question, it's rhetorical. He says, do you think that we have created you as a matter of play, in jest, out of foolishness, and that you would not be brought back to us? And so you can flip it to understand the logic. You would say basically, we are supposed to believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we just said Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala acts with purpose. He's not foolish. He's not playing. When he does something, he does it out of wisdom. So the Holy Quran is saying, if you are not going to be brought back to us, if you are not going to be held accountable for everything you're doing, the second part of the verse, then we would have created you out of foolishness. That's the logic of the verse. It's just inversed. So the verse begins by saying, do you think that we have created you out of foolishness and that you will not be brought back to us? 
to be held accountable. So, as we said, this is the logic of the verse. We're not going to spend more time on it. I think it's clear enough as a verse. This is a clear reference to the divine wisdom. Either you believe Allah subhanahu wa is wise or he is not. If you believe he is wise, then you must also believe that you're going to be held accountable for every thought and act that you do, and you are going to be going back to him. Okay? The rest I think we can skip over. And then some other verses that talk about the same idea, the same logic. We did not create the heavens and the earth and whatever is between them for idle play or in idle play. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, I wasn't playing around when I created the heavens and the earth. Okay? Had we desired to take up, and here's where you see the tone. I always tell you guys, look at the tone of the verse. Here the tone, it's not a pleasant tone to read. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is the creator of the heavens and the earth talking to human beings. He's saying, we did not create the heavens and the earth and whatever is between them in idle play. As in, I was not playing around when I created them. Had we desired to take up some diversion, if I wanted to play around, we would have surely taken it up with ourselves were we to do so. If I wanted to take a diversion, I know how to take a diversion. It would not be the creation of the heavens and the earth. That's what the verse is saying. Rather, we hurl the truth against falsehood. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, the truth is very clear. If you were actually to take both of them, truth and falsehood, and look at them, notice how the, the, the verse is going to say it. We hurl, we throw with strength, with violence. We hurl the truth against falsehood, and it crushes its head, and behold, falsehood vanishes. And woe to you for what you allege about Allah, the lies that you say about Allah. That Allah would have created all of this in play, in jest, out of foolishness. And in 38, it says, have they not reflected on their own souls? Allah did not create the heavens and the earth and whatever is between them, except in truth. And this, just this word of in truth requires lengthy discussions. Why does the Holy Quran keep saying it's created in truth, as opposed to what? How else could, be, could it be created? Except in truth and for a specified term. Indeed, many of the people disbelieve in the encounter of the Lord. So once again, you see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about the way in which the world is created, linked with believing or disbelieving in the afterlife. Okay, and then finally, those who have intellect, again, back to Surah Al-Imran, our Lord, you have not created all of this in vain. Glory to you. Give us salvation from the chastisement of the fire. This was, in summary, the first argument. So as we saw from the verses, there's a logic being presented by the Quran here. Yes, it is scripture. Yes, it is verses of the Quran from Allah. Subhanahu wa ta'ala, but there is a logic behind the verses. Even if you do not believe in the Quran as being a scripture from God, you need to deal with this at a rational level. When you have an argument that says, if all of this exists, it either exists in foolishness for no reason or not. So the Quran is saying it cannot exist out of foolishness or in jest or as an act of play. Therefore, there is a purpose behind it, and the purpose is the afterlife. 
The second argument, this one is relying more on divine justice. So the first one was divine wisdom. The second one, divine justice. Again, as we, you know, quick summary of this, we spent a whole lecture on it, but a quick summary of this is that when we look at the state of the world in which we live, we clearly see that it's not a fair world. We see that those who do good are punished, and those who do bad are rewarded. And that some of those who do good, their good is so good that there is no way to reward them. And those who do bad, some of their bad and their evil is so bad that there is no way to punish them. And so no matter how you look at this world, you see that this world is not a world of justice and fairness. And if you believe in a God and you believe that that God is just, as we have shown, then clearly there is a contradiction between divine justice and what's happening in this world. Unless there is another world. And that world is, is a world created where that justice is reestablished, not this one. This is not a world for justice. This is a world to see how human beings act if they are given free will. If they are put in certain circumstances and situations to see what choices they make. What are their actions? What deeds come out of them? How do they apply and choose their free will in this world? And that's it. That's the point of this world. And then the next world is going to be a world where all of that injustice that you see in this world is going to be re-established. And the justice is going to be clear and manifest and obvious. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will apply His justice to an infinite degree, as the Holy Quran tells us again and again. Where every iota, the smallest of your intentions, of your thoughts, of your actions, is going to be examined, and it's going to be judged, and it's going to be rewarded or punished. And inshallah we're going to talk about all of that in detail when we get there. Okay, so that's the world for divine justice, not this one. So with that in mind, keeping that in mind, that was the rational argumentation for the necessity of the afterlife based on justice. Now we look at the verses of the Qur'an that talk about this, and this is a reference to the verses of the Qur'an that talk about divine justice. So in one verse, in 38-28, it says, Shall we treat those who have faith and do righteous deeds like those who cause corruption on the earth? Allah subhanahu wa says, can I treat both of these the same way? And yet when we look at this world, you see that sometimes they are treated in this way, and in fact sometimes those who are righteous are treated worse than those who do the evil deeds. Right? There's no question about this. Anyone who understands a little bit of human history, or you look around in the state of the world, this part should be very clear. Shall we treat those who have faith and do righteous deeds? like those who cause corruption on the earth? Shall we treat the pious like the vicious? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asks in another verse, the blind one and the one who sees are not equal. Neither are those who have faith and do righteous deeds and the evil doing. How little is the admonition or the remembrance that you take? In 68.35, shall we then treat those who submit to us as we treat the guilty ones. And another verse, unto him is your return altogether. God's promise is true. Verily, he originates creation. Then he brings it back. 
that he may recompense with justice those who believe and perform righteous deeds. So again and again, the idea is that the reason why you were created is so that you act in this world and then you go back to him where justice is going to be reestablished. And then finally, and I think this verse kind of summarizes a lot of what we said into one place. So you have the divine wisdom, you have the divine promise, and then you have the divine justice. What do those who seek after evil ways think that we shall hold them equal with those who believe and do righteous deeds? That equal will be their life and their death? Ill is the judgment that they make. Allah created the heavens and the earth in truth and in order that each soul may find the recompense of what it has earned and none of them will be wronged. Okay, and so the commentary of this verse, if we wanted to go into it, you have a clear mention that there's a divine promise, that the divine promise is entirely aligned with the divine wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala creating with purpose, and that He has created in this way so that He reestablishes justice in the next world after He has seen how you act in this world. So you have kind of a summary of the entire points that we presented. Maybe very quickly a point that has come back a couple of times in the verses. The first one is this notion of haq. In Arabic, the word is a lot richer than what we can translate in English. You can't really translate haq in the same way. Well, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says he has created in haq, khalaqallahu samawati wal arda bil haq. You can't really translate that in its full meaning in English. It has too many, there's too much richness to the word. And one way to look at that is that both notions that we talked about today can be included in that word. So the notion of justice can be included in the term of haq, and the notion of purpose can be included in the term of haq. Haq can be in truth, as in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala creates something that is real. That's the haq, the truth. And the other sense, and you say that, for instance, in Arabic, when you say ala haqi, that's my right, that is a reference to justice. You have both the purpose or the wisdom and you have the justice included in this word. And that's why when we talked a year or so ago, when we presented the divine attributes, we said some of them can be found within others. If you examine certain attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you will find other, others of these attributes. Some of them are more gen generic or more general and some are, are more restrictive. If you truly understand divine wisdom, you will find divine justice within divine wisdom. And that's how you roll up divine justice within divine wisdom. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is truly perfectly wise, he must also by necessity also be just. Okay? And I think that's all we had for today. Um, I had maybe five to ten more minutes that I wanted to take, but as usual, I wanted to make sure that everybody is okay if I take five to ten more minutes to talk about another topic very, very quickly. Uh, okay, so let's do a quick salawat and then we uh, we jump into the next topic. We try in this next part to usually be a little bit more, especially in topics like today's, where they're a little bit more theoretical. We try to mention something a little bit more practical, and I'll leave it to you guys to come up with the practical applications of this. Um, so we try to usually link it to either things happening in the world or events in the Islamic calendar. 
So one of the events that perhaps we have not really talked about much in the past or a personality that we have not really mentioned in the past much, uh, it just happens today to be their death anniversary, either today or two days ago. And this is a woman by the name of Fatima. This Fatima, however, is not the daughter of the Holy Prophet Fatima Zahra This is the death of Fatima, the daughter of Imam Musa al who in the reports we are told either passed away on the 10th or the 12th of this month. So I thought in a few minutes, and as usual this is not to talk in depth about the topic at all, it's just to maybe hint to things to hopefully nudge you to go do your own research and think about this and see whether there's anything in the lives of these personalities that may be inspiring to us and that we can learn something from. History tells us that Imam al-Kalim Imam Musa al-Kalim, our seventh Imam, he had a daughter by the name of Fatima. Imam al-Kalim had a lot of children. He had 37 children. One of his girls was by the name of Fatima. Her and her brother, Imam al-Rida Ali ibn Musa al-Rida they were from the same mother. Uh, by the name of Najma Khatun. There are some narrations, some reports that Imam al-Kalim had other daughters by the name of Fatima, either two, three, or four. In some of the reports, the life of Imam al-Kalim were told that there was a Fatima al-Kubra, Fatima al-Wusta, <coughs> Fatima al-Sughra, and Fatima al-Ukhra. So there might have been four of them. This Fatima is one of them. In the reports, we're told that she was born year 173 after the migration of the Prophet If you remember, Imam Rabbi was born year 148, which means that they, there was a 25-year difference between them. She spent between 6 and 10 years with Imam Al-Kawam who was then again and again jailed and then he was poisoned in jail and he was martyred. So when he passes away, she is between six to ten years. There's different reports, we're not going into details now. Two people were extremely impactful on her life from that moment on, after the little time that she spent with her father. The first one was Imam al-Rida himself, Ali ibn Musa al-Rida, as we said, much older brother, and he took great care of her. And the second one was her grandmother, the mother of her father, Sayyidah Hamida, who was also a saintly, pure woman and who took great care of this young child. We are told that from a very young age, everybody knew that she was saintly, pure, different, exceptional. There was something different about her. In one of the famous stories about her, we're told that there's a group of people, followers of Imam al-Kawam who had traveled to meet Imam al-Kawam to ask him some questions. When they reached to his house, they saw that they were told Imam al-Kawam had traveled and he will be back shortly. They waited, they waited, the Imam did not come back, so they wrote their questions and they left them in the house and they said, we'll come back to get them. And they came back 
shortly after that to pick up their questions. The Imam had not returned, but they were given answers to all of their questions. But at the bottom of them, Fatima, the daughter of Imam al-Kalim had written that these are the answers of Fatima bint al-Kalim, bint Musa. And so they took the answers, they were happy with them because they respect the Imam and the answers came from his house. So they left, but as we said, she's a child. And as they were going back, they encountered Imam Musa al-Kalim on his way to his own house. And so they gave him the questions and the answers and they told him, we left them, we got the answers back, this is what we got. So they want the Imam to examine these questions, they want his answers. And so the Imam did not change any of the answers that were given by his daughter. And he repeated the words three times, Fidaha Abuha. And so this is a first indication that we have from Imam al-Kabum that this is not an ordinary person. This is not an ordinary child where the Imam is impressed with the answers that his very young daughter is giving to these questions that are no doubt important. A quick event that happened and that will go through her life very quickly. At 10 years of age, she was jailed along with most of the family members of Imam al-Kalim by Harun al-Rashid at that time. And then they were let go. After Imam al-Kalim as he was dying, he left in his will that for his daughters, they are only to be married based on the counsel or the advice of Imam al-Rada And that's why the daughters of Imam al-Kalim, some historians want to say they never wanted to get married or Imam al-Kalim said that they, would, they should not get married. No, Imam al-Kalim wrote in his will that they are only to be married based on what Imam al-Rada his son Ali, was considering to be beneficial and good. The problem is that none of them got married and the way we are to interpret this is an indication of the disastrous state in which they were living, the difficulties in which they were living, and especially for people like Fatima, the daughter of Imam al-Kawam These people who are very saintly, they need someone to be corresponding to their personality and aligned with their values and their beliefs and their conduct. And if there's no one who can match that, then of course there's not going to be that ease to be able to live with someone like that. And in addition to that, of course, as we said, this was a very, very difficult time for the entire family of Imam al-Kawam and Imam al-Rada They continued to live in al-Madinah al-Munawwara until year 200. At year 200, this is when Al-Ma'mun forced Imam al-Rada to leave al-Madinah al-Munawwara and go join him in Khurasan to become the heir apparent to the throne. The Imam initially rejected this. He was forced. He was said, you either come or you get killed. So the Imam agreed and he left. His sister Fatima remained behind in Medina. She stayed for about one year. And here it becomes difficult to say why exactly did she leave in Medina al-Munawwara. Clearly she missed her brother Imam al-Hasan There's no doubt about that. But many of the historians who analyze this period and who talk about the letters that would come and go and so on and so forth, they say, no, she left the Medina al-Munawwara because she had a role to play. The Imam wanted her 
in Khurasan with him to handle some affairs and certain things that she could handle, especially on the woman's side. She could take care of things for Imam Rabbah So she might have been asked by the Imam to come join him. In any case, she took 23 people from her household and together they formed a little caravan and they left the city of Medina towards Khurasan to go join Imam Rabbah on the way, they joined another very big caravan made up of 12,000 people who were also going in that same direction in order to show their allegiance to Imam Rada who had now become almost a year ago, a year before then, in 200, this is now in 201, after Hijrah, who had become the heir apparent. So they're there to show their allegiance. This group of people moves to towards uh, Khurasan, but they never make it there. They are attacked by the army of the Khalifa, by the army of al-Mamun. All 23 people of the family of Fatima and Masuma were killed. From the 12,000 people, none made it to Khurasan. The people were either killed, or they were jailed, or they were wounded, and they set camp, and they joined other areas in those lands, and she made it to the town of present day, the city of Qum. That's how far she got. She stayed in a couple of houses, I'm not gonna go into the details there, until she reached a place that is well known, and she remained there for 17 days, and then she passed away. And most likely, on the first place where she had stayed, she had been poisoned, because this is a, a very young woman, not even 30 years old, and she is dying on the way to that city, her aspiration, her hope was to reach her brother Imam She never did, and so she was buried there, and her mausoleum was erected. It became a shrine, and it is still a place that is visited and considered sacred and sanctified by those who understand who she is and what she represented even at that time. Maybe very quickly, some people say that this status of sainthood is sometimes attributed to people simply based on the fact that they have some sort of family relationship with someone else. So, the case of Fatima, that we refer to as Fatima al-Masuma, and we'll talk about that in a second, is clearly in contradiction with this idea. When we say that Imam al-Kawam had 37 children, obviously we do not consider the 37 of them as saints. The idea of considering someone a saint and pure and immaculate and someone that we want to be inspired by and someone we want to learn from requires certain traits, requires certain things that give us the certitude that this is someone who is worthy of this. It's not just because there's a family relationship. We might respect the family relationship. There's no issue with that. But we need more before we consider someone pure. We consider someone saintly. In the case of Fatima al-Masuma, we certainly have that. And we have that to a very clear and large extent. And to us, the main criteria as followers of the Imams, our main criteria is that we want to see what the Imams say about someone. And if they tell us that this is someone saintly and worth respecting and worth following and worth venerating, then that becomes our main truth. In addition to the fact that in this case, we have someone that, if we study her life, we see that she was full of knowledge, she was full of struggle, 
She was full of vigor and energy. She worked with a mission. She had her values and she lived by them and she died by them. So in addition to her life, if we look at the manner in which the Imams dealt with her, we see that Fatimah al-Masuma had been given the highest esteem and status and merit from the Imams themselves. And we have we can look at this from multiple angles. In one of the one of the ways to look at this, if we look at the Imams when they talk about visiting her, multiple Imams have talked about visiting Fatima al-Masuma. Imam Sadiq spoke about a girl that we that would be born out of his descendants, so way before she was born. She said that she would be buried in the city of Qom, and whoever visits her grave, they will be guaranteed heaven. And that she would do an intercession to those who love her and to follow her in the afterlife. This is before she is born, and her name is Fatima, he says. Imam al-Jawad so he happens to be her nephew, he talks about the Fatima, his aunt Fatima, and he says whoever visits her grave shall be guaranteed heaven. Imam al-Rada her brother, who knew that she was trying to join him and who she never made it, he said in his lifetime, and this is an extremely important saying from Imam al about his sister. He is still alive, and his, his sister has now passed away, and she is buried in the city of Qum, and he's in Khurasan. And he says, whoever visits the Ma'suma of Qum, it is as though he has visited me. Now, first of all, he is the one who is naming his sister Fatima al-Ma'suma. Is this the same Asma and infallibility that we believe in the case of the Imma? No. She is not one of the 12 that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told us are going to follow and form the cycle and the chain of Imam. But there's certainly something immaculate. There's some, certainly something pure and saintly about this woman that Imam al-Rada who is unanimously considered as someone who is at the highest levels of spirituality and purity in Islam, says about her, whoever visits al-Ma'suma, the immaculate one of Qum, it is as though he has visited me. And this is an indication when the Imam says that, the Imam is basically saying this equal, whatever you hope to gain from visiting the Imam, whether alive or dead, as we believe, is going to be accomplished by visiting the grave of his sister, Fatima And of course, there is this notion that comes back again and again. It doesn't mean that just because you went to visit a grave that you've now been guaranteed heaven. It's, there's always a mention that we find in our reports that you have to be knowledgeable or recognizing of their status. In other words, you have to have a belief system in place. You know who they are. You know what they represent. You know who they, what they stand for. And you don't have anything preventing you from receiving the benefits that that thing does. You have committed injustice and oppression against people and then you hope to go and just because you visited a grave of a saint that everything is going to be forgiven, it doesn't work that way. But if you have done everything you need to do and you go, then you should be resting more assured that you have one further guarantee that you are on the right path and moving towards the Jannah, inshallah. 
I already spoke more than I wanted to. As I said, the point that we were trying to make is that when we say someone has a saintly character, someone like this woman, Fatima al-Masuma, despite her short age, she died 1,200 years ago. Today, her mausoleum, her shrine is still there, visited by millions every year. There's a reason for that. This does not come out of nothing. There is some sort of merit, and subhanAllah, these things usually Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who takes care of showing the greatness, the splendor, the magnificence of these people and the way that he sees fit in this world. Otherwise, who would think that this woman, young and relatively unknown at the world level at that time, who ends up passing away, dying on the way to reaching her brother, she did not, does not even make it there. Twelve centuries later, her shrine is there to be visited by millions all the time, and people consider her a saint, and they study her life, and they write books about it, and they take inspiration from every aspect of her life. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to help us understand the lives of those that He loves and likes, and we take inspiration from them so that we follow in their footsteps. وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين اللهم صل على محمد وعلى محمد وانتم there are any questions concerns comments online or here please let me know I don't expect anything online anything here or just out of curiosity yeah so I know that uh, Imam Hussein he named, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he named all his daughters uh, by the name of Fatima, or most of them. Is that correct? Yes and no. Okay. And, so, and, uh, and you mentioned Imam Qasim as well. So um, is, th does it have to do with uh, the, like, the remembrance and the, like, bringing back the spirit of uh, Sayyidah Fatima Zahra Exactly. So in short, Imam Hussain we have a narration that says that he was calling all of his sons Ali and that he was giving them a nickname, some other name. And in fact, this is something that, as we have explained in the past, there was a war against the name Ali at that time. So the descendants of Imam Ali were making it a point. And some of Bani Umayyah, when they came to Imam Hussain and asked him, they wanted to mock the Imam. They said, who is that? They said Ali. And who is that? They said Ali. Who are they sons of? They said Al-Hussein. So that man, he mocked him on Hussein He said, are there no other names? Has Hussein run out of names to keep calling his sons Ali? So they came back to Imam Hussein and they informed him. And he said, I swear that if God granted me 50 sons, I would call them all Ali. So the reason for this, as we said, is that, and this lasted for almost 80 years, where Imam Ali was cursed on the pulpits, and no one was allowed to be called Ali, Ali at that time. And history is clear that during that time, they were even saying that if people were, had been called Ali, whether they were followers of Ali or not, they were changing their name to Ulay. And if you go back in history, it's very clear, just so that they're not tormented and persecuted and oppressed based on their name. The same thing was happening to Fatima. This represented now a political thing, a political ideology, and so the Imma made a point to keep calling their daughters and their sons by these two names to make sure that that line on those values and those teachings remain alive and don't go away. And that's exactly the point that we see with Imam al-Kawm That said, 
it does require more study to see exactly how many daughters did he have and what were the, what were what were their names. Certainly, he had other daughters that were not named Fatima in the case of Imam al-Kabum salam. In the case of Imam Hussein, it needs to be discussed whether his daughters, by the name of not by the name of Fatima, were actually called Fatima, and those were their nicknames, as was traditional in the by the Arabs to give a name and one name from the father, one name from the mother, and then nicknames given to to every person. Okay. Thank you. Are we good? Okay. Wassalamu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi